Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. We asked them where was a good restaurant to go eat at, and they said, I don't know, but I can tell you where there are some good dumpsters. I feel like if you ask for a green juice in the South, they like take you in for questioning. I used to have a tremendous fear of flying. It was really, really bad. We're, I mean, borderline paralyzing. You mean you didn't know you were going to marry the guy from Full House? Like, come on. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim, and I'm back. Tim's back, and Kelly Rizzo is joining us today. She's the founder of Eat Travel Rock, a YouTube series, and now a production company where she basically hangs out with master chefs and rock stars while traveling the world. We're going to talk all things travel hacking, food tourism, and what celebrity chefs are really like, so stay tuned for that. But first, as you just heard, Tim is back after a month-long parental leave. Welcome back, buddy. This is the longest I've gone without seeing your face in over a year, I think. Oh, probably at least a year and a half. I mean, how many hours a week do you think we spend on chats? Probably three or four. I know. For like, you know, it's been like, I missed you, buddy. I haven't had anyone to like have these conversations with on a regular basis. I've I've, uh, had a great time hanging out and welcoming our daughter home. It's been an incredible month. A lot of reflection, a lot of learning, a lot of poop. Uh, there's been all kinds of incredible experiences going on, but I have missed our face-to-face uh, online interactions. Well, I have two huge questions for you, and I'll, um, I'll ask them in order of importance. Exactly how much did you miss me? And number two, what is it like being a father? Well, Evan, I missed you this much, okay? Like this much, so you can see. And I can't see. His hands are so far apart, I can't even see them on the screen. They're so far apart for all you listening that, you know, it's just been, it's been a, a, a heartfelt month, but it's also been a month where I've, you know, missed all of my normal interactions. So it, it, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back. Uh, I, I want to say being a dad is an incredible, incredible feeling. My wife did an amazing job. She's the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. And, and watching our baby come into the world. I got to be honest with you, man. I broke down. I was crying really, really hard. Like when she came out and she was all purple and beautiful and I cut the umbilical cord and I was sobbing so hard. It was crazy. And it was an absolutely incredible experience. And, uh, you know, the doctors and everybody did an amazing job. The midwife, um, our baby is home and she's happy and healthy. Mama's happy and healthy. It's it's beautiful. Glad to hear it. And congrats again to you and Alicia. Shout out to Alicia. She's killing it. She's a she's a natural, you know, like I'm I'm like learning and making all these mistakes, but she's like got it down. She is keeping this baby alive and growing. Well, we're glad everyone's happy and healthy and looking forward to Olivia's first appearance on the podcast. Yes, it'll be it'll be sooner than later, I bet. <laughs> Hopefully. So we're gonna get into hot takes unless you've forgotten how to have hot takes tim i mean it's, fu- it's been yeah a while. it's funny like i i feel like i've been rusty these last couple of days at work but now uh, i am ready to go actually i had plenty of time to think so i've got some good questions yeah earlier today tim called our boss by the wrong name by our previous boss's name that's like calling your current I, wife by your ex-girlfriend's name yeah oof, that one might be worse though i think all right um let me go let me ask you a few questions first tim to shake the cobwebs off of you here is the flight map bullshit on airplanes? <laughs> you know, I I have to admit that I watch it sometimes, especially if it's like a long haul overseas flight, because you want to see like, God, how many more hours do I have to be on this thing? And so you, you track the slow, slow progress. But I'll tell you what's not bullshit. And what's actually awesome is the camera that shows the plane landing when it's coming into the runway and you're like watching the runway get closer. That is sweet. That's cool. I think that, so you actually sit there and you watch the flight. So by the flight map, just so everyone knows, I, I, I mean the map that you can put on your little TV screen on the, on the plane that tracks the ever so slow movements of your plane on the map of the world. So you can see how far you have to your destination. It's like watching 
paint dry basically it is So you sit there and you just watch that like that's your you just sit there with it on not just peek at it every once in a while you watch it the entire time no i peek at it once in a while i generally have the screen off to be honest unless i'm watching a movie because i'm you know i but i do check it i will check it frequently and increasingly frequently uh as the flight gets closer to its destination okay so i'm a big fan of the whole a watch pot never boils uh mentality and the more you watch that flight map, I think the slower the whole experience is. It's a countdown. It basically says time to destination, six hours and 25 minutes, six hours and 24 minutes, six hours and 23 minutes. If you're watching that and that's how you're measuring the passage of time and you're not distracting yourself with a movie or a book or a podcast or whatever, I think that doubles how long the flight feels like it's taking. You know what's kind of cool about it, though, is seeing what city or part of the world you're above right now. Like, looking at it and be like, oh, man, like, I'm flying over Dubai right now. I'm flying over the middle of the ocean right now. Like, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. It'd be cooler if I could look out the window and see it. Not not in any detail, but just even see, like, the land knowing, oh, that's that land is Greenland. I'm flying over Greenland. That's There it is right there. That's pretty cool. So, I get it. I don't know. I, I think... And different people have different ways of kind of grappling with the passage of time. But for me, I have to completely remove myself from checking my phone, checking the flight map, checking any kind of passage of uh, hours or minutes, because that makes it go so slowly. It's an exercise in self-restraint for me to not look at clocks during the flight. And that makes it go quicker. If I don't look at the flight map, it makes it go quicker. Fair enough. Anyway, next take for you is... When does a gathering become a party? So at what point you're chilling in someone's house with a bunch of people, at what point does it morph from a gathering into a house party? When the keg shows up. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I've, I've always had that thinking when I was young and went to keg parties and many, many years ago. Uh, that's what always defined it to me. Like when you're inviting people and you say, I'm having a party at my house this weekend, they expect something of that level, right? Like they expect the keg or they expect live music or they expect something that separates it and defines it as nothing else other than a party. Otherwise, you're just having people over, you know, you can have people over for, you know, drinks or for dinner or whatever, but that's not necessarily a party. That's my question is, where is that line? So if I have 100 people in my room, or my apartment, but there's no keg, that's not a party. So what is it? Is it the keg? Is it the number of people? Is it the entertainment that's available? Is it the drinking? Is it what is it? I think it's, it's one of those graphs where those those two things have to kind of combine above a certain level for it to hit that threshold, right? Like the amount of people and what they're doing and talking about combined with the theme that brought those people over be that you know the keg or the band or uh the fact that you're all playing some certain game like a murder mystery or something like that whatever it is that brought all those people together it has to combine to reach a threshold where when you're describing it the next day there's no other word you could describe it as as other than a party and i wonder this a lot actually because people invite you to things that they'll call parties all the time they'll go and have a party on friday and I'm like, okay, but are you really? Or is it just a, like six Who people? are you hanging out with? Because I don't ever get invited to parties. <laughs> I haven't been invited to a party in years. <laughs> Who are these people that are throwing all these parties? Tim, while you were home with the baby, me and Alicia have been partying it up every every Friday and Saturday. It's been sick. I don't know what you're doing. But <laughs> yeah, she needs a drink. Um, people say, okay, I'm having a party. And then what it turns out to be is five or six people just sitting around in their apartment, smoking weed, and just like chilling and talking. That to me is not a party. No, that is not a party. But, then I, I, then I, but, but in their mind, they're like, oh yeah, I had a little party. It's like, no, you didn't really have a party. But then what is a party? What is that? To me, I think, what I think it is, I think it's you have to have three people per 100 square feet. So if you have oh. a 500 square foot apartment, then you have to have 15 people, right? That sounds reasonable. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine feet. 15 people in my 500 square foot apartment when I lived in Washington Park in Denver, and I'm having a really hard time picturing that many people in there and being anything other than miserable. I don't know. I think there's a certain person per square foot barometer that we have to set. There's also a, a it doesn't have to be a keg, but quantity and availability of alcohol, volume of music, not just like John Mayer on like a 
chill, relaxed volume. I'm talking like bumping a stereo. So if you're in a very small room with three people and you're bumping Slayer, can you say that that's a party? Honestly, I don't know. Well, uh, but you, it, it, like, I would tend to say no, but you see how this is a tough question to answer. If you're in a really small room, how many people is a party? Can you even have a party in a small room? I don't know. But I think it's important to note that like, you know, my definition of what a party is, is based on my experience as somebody who drinks uh, and, you know, at a younger age, drank heavily on a regular basis. Somebody who doesn't drink, like we should be asking, what do they consider a party? What is a party to somebody who who uh, doesn't drink and likes to go to bed at seven? I yeah, I don't know. I don't think they go to parties. I don't. I, don't, I think they would answer that because I personally, as someone who drinks, I don't think I've been to any real parties in years. Me either. Because the people that the people think that are billed as parties to me turn out to just be little gatherings of people chilling in an apartment. It's not a party. So that's why I'm asking the question. I'm curious what someone like that would answer. The reason I'm that what inspired this question was I got invited to a party in Denver last weekend. Um, I didn't know. I only know why. I have one friend in Denver, and he invited me to a party his friend was having. I had very low expectations. I was like, okay, it's Denver. It, it's just going to be a bunch of like mountain kids sitting around smoking weed and like listening to shitty music and it's gonna suck and i got there and it was awesome it was actually really really fun it was uh, i don't know what the square footage of this house was but uh i'd say there was probably 30 to 35 people there um playing beer pong good loud music she had a ton of drinks for everyone no keg but a lot of drinks uh good girl guy ratio it wasn't just like a 90 percent dude fest it was good it was a lot of fun that was the first time I'd been to what I would consider like a real party in easily like five, six, seven years. It sounds to me like what you what you are considering a party is like the college party, right? Like because that, that's what this sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't like out of control. People like you know destroying furniture or anything. It was fine. It was you know it was relatively. It's all people who were twenty eight to thirty two, I'd say. Uh, but it was fun. It was a good time. It wasn't reckless, but it was. Um, it was a lot of people, good music, a lot of drinks. So I, I'd say, but as I was there, I was thinking, okay, so this I do consider a party, but it's the first of these that I've actually been to in a long time. What are the criteria that are leading me to designate this as a party? So what is that? I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Oh, I think everybody probably has like a different definition. Like mine, based on you know my experience in college and high school, is probably along the lines of what you're thinking of. But I'm, I, it just seems to me like, like now that I'm thinking about it, my definition of, of a party is probably very different than some other people's definition of a party. Right. Everyone has different definitions. And that's why I'm actually really curious that you mentioned it to hear with someone who doesn't drink and like doesn't really isn't into like the bar scene, didn't party in college, like what their concept of a party is. Maybe it's a dinner party. Maybe it's just a bunch of, of a couple friends hanging out, having dinner and wine. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the kind of party I go to now is is the yeah. dinner party. Okay, glad we sorted that out. Sort of. We didn't really sort anything out. Actually, I have more questions than answers. But <laughs> we, yeah. we defined we defined uh, very loose things. Well, I've got a couple for you, Evan. In this first one, I we're gonna get a little reflective, and then we're gonna think forward. I don't like to do either of those things. Last summer of last year, you know, we started planning this podcast, and then we launched in October and. Over the course of the next year, we 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 worked at it and we grew it and we got to a point where we were comfortable pitching it to, to media companies, etc. And you know, we got picked up. Granted, we had an in with Matador. It's you know not like not like that was uh, too far fetched of a thing for us. But by and large, I would say that this podcast has been successful, uh, and we've done it together. And I want to propose to you our next business venture. I love that you're that you instead of talking to me about this privately, we're just talking about it right out in the open in front of everyone. Let's do it. What's our next business venture? Right. Let's what, do it. What we need to do is we need to invest in a laundromat. In a laundromat. Yes. This is why. Okay. Think about it. You own a laundromat. This is a small laundromat. It's not a laundromat where there's employees and like you have to wash people's clothes. It's a self-service only laundromat. Okay. You show up in the morning and open the doors. You show up at night, you close the doors, and you take your money. Bam. 
end of story. And of course there are maintenance issues. There are going to be vandalized issues. There's going to be all kinds of issues you're going to have to deal with by and large, but largely owning a laundromat seems to be, to be a pretty passive investment that would be great for frequent travelers. No blackout sheets, no blackout sheets. That's my contribution. No blackout sheets. We're really franchising. You'd expect that we do like another offshoot podcast about something travel related. No, no, no. We're doing laundromat. We're getting into laundromats. Well, this is how it, no, see, it is, it is travel related. And this is why we're going to decorate the interior of the laundromat with a bunch of framed posters of punk shows from the eighties and the nineties. And then we're going to get it on Atlas Obscura as a unique Ooh, place to visit. So you don't see that a lot. Laundromat, like no, laundromats. no, but laundry, like laundromats, like people get, also remote people get super into bowling alleys. They're super into bowling alleys, you know, like let's make laundromats the new bowling. I alley. love this now that I'm thinking about it because I, I sit there and I do, I, I work while I'm washing my clothes because I don't have a washer dryer. So I walk two blocks down. I, put my clothes in and I sit there and I just work, but there's no, it's not, there's no atmosphere. There's no real desks for me to sit at. I just sit there in the chair and I, you know, I do my work and it's fine. But if there was like a, a real cool vibe, it's like a cool place to, I, I always think about it. This could be a cool place to meet people, but there's no incentive to sit and hang out and stick around. There's nothing to do. There's no atmosphere. It's not comfortable. Co-working laundromat, co-working baby. Laundromat. Co-working laundromat. It's the most perfect thing ever. And you know what? When I was in college, I wanted to own a laundromat that was also a bar and a music venue. I don't want to do that anymore because <laughs> it would be a complete nightmare. I don't know about that. But a co-working laundromat. Slam dunk. Co-working laundromat. No blackout sheets. I love this no idea. No blackout sheets. I was lukewarm on it at first, but now I'm all in. Well, I convinced you, Evan. So that was the first hot take. My second one, this is more of a yes or no answer. Is Hollywood out of good ideas for movies? Because as you know, Dune, the new Dune is out now. Uh, There have been multiple Dunes. There have been video games, yada, yada, yada. The movie itself, the concept of it is not new. It's a remake. And I'm not saying it wasn't good. I watched it. It was engaging. We got through it. It was a little long. But what's with all the remakes? Is Hollywood out of ideas? I don't know that Hollywood is out of ideas. I think it's just easier to regurgitate old ideas because it's less of a risk. I think that if you can tap into something that was popular a year ago or even 15 years ago, revive it, reboot it, slap a new Hollywood star on it and repackage it, I think that's cheaper and more reliably profitable than coming up with a brand new concept and hoping people latch onto it. So I don't think it's that they can't come up with new ideas. I think they've just, the Marvel phenomenon has showed Hollywood that they can take already existing stories and already existing characters and continue to reboot them, repackage them, put new actors in their roles and push them out to an audience and basically belabor the same universe for years and years and years. And they're still going to make boatloads of money off of it. Right. I agree. But I I will say that as a more of a positive take on the new Dune movie, while we were in our production meeting this week, uh, someone on our team noted that Dune is what inspired George Lucas to create Star Wars and that the, the Star Wars universe was loosely based on Dune, which is crazy. And I did not know that. And I wonder if the makers of Dune are jealous because Star Wars is so much more successful. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes to the idea that nothing is really original. And I think I actually talked about this with Melanie the other day, is that it comes to creating Instagram content, is that, you know, you can try as much as you want to be original. People hail Star Wars as this revolutionary film franchise. Turns out they were copying Dune. Who knew? So you can try as much as you want. You can try to be original. You can go out of your way to not mimic what another creative personality has done already before you. And you're still probably going to unintentionally copy somebody. So to Hollywood's credit, <laughs> it's being original is almost impossible these days. So cut Star Wars some slack, I guess. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll end it there. We will cut it, and we are going to get into it with Kelly. We'll see you on the other side. How long have you been waiting to say that again? Month, baby. Kelly Rizzo is the founder of Eat Travel Rock, where she combines her love of food, music, and travel to create some highly entertaining and informative content. She's been featured on ABC, Bravo, and VH1, but most importantly, she's now here on No Black Updates. Kelly, welcome and thanks for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I love this. So why don't you start by telling us how Eat Travel Rock came to be? I mean, everyone loves food, music, and travel, so it seems like a no-brainer. But how did you come up with the concept? Well, so, gosh, I was in a totally different life years ago. I was in real estate. I was a realtor in Chicago for, gosh, 15-plus years. And I got very burnt out on it. And maybe around like 2010, 2011 or so, I'm like, you know, I just want to reinvent myself and I want to kind of get a fresh start and do something that I'm actually passionate about and knowledgeable about and that I can share with people. Um, And, you know, this was when people were kind of just starting blogs, you know, and so I just went online. I'm like, well, what do I love and what can I talk about and what do I want to share with people? I'm like food, travel, music. So I went on and I bought eattravelrock.com and I just started writing and then I knew ultimately I wanted to do more on camera stuff. So then it kind of evolved into creating a lot of video content and then I started Eat Travel Rock TV in like 2014 and then it kind of just became a full-time job where then I was, you know, really bringing food, travel, and music together. You know, a lot of times, yes, as you mentioned, people love those three things. It sounds like a no-brainer, but how can I bring them together into you know, one cohesive experience most of the time. You know, every episode's a little different. Sometimes it focuses more on one or the other, Um, but I love bringing them all together when you can travel to a certain destination and then really experience the best of food and music in that location. And that manifested in creating guides for people in certain cities to where to eat, where to enjoy live music. Yeah, so, um, you know, the video content, like Eat Travel Rock TV was a lot of times me... Um, you know, interviewing chefs, interviewing musicians, going to music festivals, really showing, you know, how I myself love to bring all those elements together. Um, But then, yeah, in terms of trying to provide value on a different level um, versus just the video content was, you know, great city guides and travel guides of, um, you know, my favorite places and, you know, places to eat, places to... um, listen to live music, my favorite hotels. And it's not always, you know, my angle is not necessarily like budget travel or luxury travel. It's more like the cool way to travel, like cool, trendy uh, hotels, you know, where let's say like new hot restaurants, stuff like that. And it seems to me just watching shows about food and about travel and generally as well, but people seem to always kind of love everything. It's very, very rare that you hear anything negative in a food or a travel show. What, what are your thoughts on that? And do you ever feel that you're kind of playing off something that you're not crazy about just for the sake of the camera? Yeah, because I always wonder when you see these cooking show or these, uh, these restaurant shows and the host is always trying these dishes and it's always like, mm, oh my God, this is delicious. This is the best thing I've ever had in my life. This is the best shrimp cocktail I've ever had. It's like, is it though? Or is it like, is it always just, just okay? Well, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and, and cooking is a, it's a different level because I mean, it's just like if you go to anybody's house and they make you dinner and they make you something that you don't really like, of course, you're not gonna be like, Ugh, this is terrible. Like, you know, like you're gonna be like, Oh, it's good. Right. But you do owe your audience a level of, you know, truth and honesty as well. So same thing. If, I mean, it's one, if I'm on a live cooking show and somebody made something for me to try you know, I might be like, hmm, that's interesting, you know, but I'm not gonna be like, oh, that's horrible. But in terms of, let's say, a restaurant that invites me in or something like that, I'm always gonna be honest. And if, let's say, there was a certain dish that somebody's like, oh my God, did you try that? I'd be like, you know what, that was not my favorite. I I think, though, that when you get away from a little bit of those, um, you know, the hyperbole and just people constantly talking everything up to that, like, this is epic. If, like, I'm, I'm like... Not everything is epic. Everything cannot be epic by definition. You know, like let's stop with the word epic. Well, so in all your experience traveling around the U.S. and around the world, what are the cities and countries with the best food and music experience? This is a very fun question because there've there've been a lot. Um, I could maybe detail a few like very interesting experiences that I've had. Um, I went to a music festival in Switzerland and that was one of the coolest experiences I'd ever had because it was this amazing like kind of rock festival called Moon and Stars Festival in 
Ticino, Switzerland, which is like their Italian region. And they took this 500 year old piazza, like in the middle of this beautiful town. And they built this, like a huge stage. And you're looking around at these beautiful storybook buildings that look like they're out of a fairy tale. And you're at an Imagine Dragons concert. Like it was, it was very surreal and very crazy. And one of the coolest traveling music experiences I'd had. Um, but in terms of best, let's say food scenes, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to disagree that Japan is probably the most unique and interesting food destination probably in the world. That was a very eye-opening, very interesting food immersive experience that I had when I went to Japan because I wasn't just in Tokyo. I went all around um, some other, you know, kind of smaller towns in Japan and I was like, wow. Will you ever do fast food when you travel or were you, do you stick to the, try stick to as much as possible to the local authentic cultural cuisine or you'd be like, like hey, you know what? Chains? I'm hungry. Yeah. Like I'm hungry. It's been, you know, six hours, seven hours, haven't eaten nothing else around. I'm going to get a subway. Is um, that you or you'd like, no, absolutely not. I'll subway? Never do that. Definitely not. Um, I would say like yesterday I was at coming back from Orlando. I mean, not that Orlando is necessarily known for like, you know, their unique cuisine culture or anything, but I was at the airport and I got Wendy's cause I was starving. I'm like, I need, you know, it's a little hungover. I'm like, I need some. Yeah. Wendy's. Airport is when you do the fast food. Exactly. So I don't know if that really counts, but when I am, um, anywhere I will you know I'll get maybe like a local fast food chain um you know if there's like a local burger spot or a local you know hot dog spot or something that's even a little shack dive that's considered fast food but like I won't go to the chains really speaking of uh food that's potentially taboo what's uh what's your view on Chicago style pizza because you're from Chicago right I love it I love it and I'm gonna call it pizza I'm not going to call it a casserole. <laughs> I know where you're going with that. Well, um, I'm curious because I've heard that people from Chicago and who live in Chicago don't eat deep dish pizza on a regular basis. That's kind of like a once in a while thing. Deep dish isn't like the go-to for Chicago people. It's just kind of like a special novelty. And that's probably true overall because it is, you know, it's a, a heavier, a heavier meal. Um, but growing up in my family, we ate it so frequently. Like my dad is a pizza guy and he has always been like when I was growing up, like I didn't know when I was really little, let's say, you know, four or five, six and, you know, we're ordering pizza. Like that's what we got. So like I didn't know that there was like thin crust pizza. Like I only knew of pizzas, this deep dish stuffed pizza. And like when we would go out for pizza, we would go to cool local spots in Chicago that had deep dish pizza. You know, it's not only Gino's or Giordano's. When did you learn about non-deep dish pizza? Like what age were you when you were like, wow, there's a whole well, you world know, like when there. you Right, when you go to school probably and it's pizza day, um, that's when I, or, you know, you'd order Domino's or something like that. But that wasn't even until maybe like high school. Like, But like growing up when I was younger, like I only really knew deep dish. And so... To me, it's very, I mean, it's delicious. There's no way around that. Um, and I don't think, I get so confused as to like why it's this, uh, you know, issue like deep dish or thing. Like, why can't you just love both? Why yeah. can't you just appreciate yeah. both? It doesn't have to be one or the other. I love both. When I go to New York, like the first thing I do every time I'm in New York is find, you know, a slice of pizza. Like, I love that. Like on a daily basis, I'd probably choose that over deep dish, but it's deep dish to me is like very nostalgic and it just like reminds me kind of of childhood and of Chicago and of growing up. So it's got a special place in my heart. This is a perfect conversation because I, I consider myself a pizza guy, but I'll out myself as having never had Chicago style before, never had deep dish. And I'm actually going with my friend tonight to Giordano's. It's a, like one of their branches it's in Colorado. And I'm going there tonight for dinner and I'm so excited because I've never had deep dish. I've had this prejudice against it my whole life, probably unfounded, but 
I'm like pumped to to turn the page on that and hope I'm really hoping I like it. Wait, I'm really so this excited. This conversation for you. really is getting me like in the mood for that. This is great. I'm really excited for you. And Giordano's is really good. That's so what Giordano's I hear. Giordano's yeah. is um definitely one of my favorites. It's better than like Gino's East and Uno's. Um but Oh my God, you're really gonna love it! I'm so excited for you. I can't, I can't contain myself. I, well, I know. Wait, it's now not, where in where in Colorado? It's are you in, in it's in Loveland, Colorado. So it's a okay. um, it's near Fort Collins. It's like I know that it, it probably might not be as good as the original in Chicago because that's kind of how these things work. But I'm hoping it's like comparable at least, so I can feel like I got the Giordano's experience. Even if it's close, it's. Oh my gosh, you have to report back. I need to hear all about this. This is very exciting. And Tim, what about you? Are you a deep dish kind of guy? I'm more of a Chicago. I, I don't know. I would. I agree with what Evan said about New York is what you do commonly, but Chicago is more of a treat. And I'll, I'll share a story, actually. The only time I've actually had authentic Chicago deep dish pizza was probably 12 years ago. I was working at a ski resort, also in Colorado. And one of the guys I worked with was from Chicago, and he would go back every couple of months and fly home with or have a bunch of pizzas shipped to Colorado from this restaurant in his neighborhood in Chicago. So that was always like a huge deal. Everybody that we worked with would pool money to buy like a dozen pizzas. Well, and what you can do now, um, like so Evan, tonight after you're hooked and you're like, I need to have this more regularly, is Lou Malnati's, which is obviously a very, very famous Chicago uh, deep dish pizza place. They ship, I think it's like, I forget the website. It's very easy to find. But um, you can order like frozen Lumel Nati's pizzas that they come on dry ice and pop them in the freezer and then put in the oven for 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it is. And then you have like fresh, like real, because it's made there, you know, like you have good Chicago pizza at home. Well, I saw this the other day. Giordano's has a frozen pizza that they make that you can, I think, I think they, just order or buy in the store. Right. I think they do that, too. Um, I just haven't had that one before, but I'm sure I'm sure they're both probably pretty I don't good. want to get ahead of myself here. I, I, I don't, you, you I might, get, you might not getting, even like it. You might not. I know, but I'm, I know. I'm, I'm guessing that I'm you will. I'm trying to stay positive. All right. I, I want to ask a controversial, another controversial question that's not pizza related Ooh. now. Okay. So you are... I don't know if you would consider yourself a foodie, but you're knowledgeable about the food scene in the States. New York or, New York or LA, better food scene? New York. Okay. I thought you were going to say that, but I wasn't. Zero hesitation sure. on that one. Zero hesitation. LA is great for sushi. I still haven't. Supposedly, we have amazing Mexican, like authentic Mexican here. I haven't really yet experienced that. My husband's not. I always try to get him to eat like tacos and stuff. He's usually not into it. He's more of a sushi guy. So um, you know what part of it is too? In New York or even Chicago for that matter, because that's another amazing food city, but uh, New York, you can be in any neighborhood and you can just walk out your door and there's like 20 amazing restaurants on your street and you're never in like a shortage for great restaurants. We're in LA, you know, you have to drive everywhere. There's not you know, everything's kind of like a destination. You're never just experiencing things like you're walking by a place. And you're like, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to pop in there. Um, that does not exist here. It's more about where you're eating rather than what you're eating. Yeah. And even some of the very, like, for instance, you know, like last night, my husband ate at the, you know, polo lounge here. And he's like, yeah, we each had a crab cake. He was with a friend. We each had a crab cake and it was $45 per crab cake. You know, and then he's like, and then the rest of the food, you know, he's like, maybe it was an off night, but like, it was okay. And I'm like, I can't even imagine what the total bill was and for food that's like, okay, but it's because you're at the Polo Lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's comes with that price tag and everything is considered the best when it's really not. Like there's a lot of restaurants here that are very, very sceny and like the places to go and the food is subpar. My perception of LA is that it just took all of New York's food and zapped all the calories out of it, made it all vegan and organic and farm to table, and that's LA food. Yeah. I will say what I do love about out here is, like for instance, very recently, I was just in Tulsa for a, a work trip and they actually had great food and I was eating a ton, but they don't have a lot of like healthy options. Everything is like biscuits and gravy and fried chicken. I mean you know, more decadent, you know, caloric foods. And I was like, I want like a juice bar. Like <laughs> there was like no juice bar. Like I was just, you know, as I said, I was just in Daytona beach all weekend for this music festival. 
and I was like, there was nowhere to get a green juice. And after all the booze, I'm like, I have to have a green juice. And there was nothing. And I come back to LA and I'm like, today, I'm like, oh, okay, good. I'm going to go get a juice today. I'm going to feel better about myself. (laughs) You know, maybe get a, you know, a grain bowl somewhere. I feel like if you ask for a green juice in the South, they'd like take you in for questioning. Like that's like suspicious. No, or it'd be like, or it'd be like lime Kool-Aid or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's juice and it's green. Oh, yeah. We have we still, we have Surge. Yeah. We still make Surge. Exactly. Oh, down south we do. Oh, it's yeah. It's like Mountain Dew. You want Mountain Dew? Yeah. No, I remember being in uh, Louisiana in the bayou and every single restaurant we went to had nothing for under 3,000 calories. Like every single meal was fried, yeah. and, like deep fried seafood heavy butter it was delicious but it's not you can't do not ask for a salad and definitely don't ask for green juice yeah it's great for a couple days here and there but speaking of food cities i think i don't know if i'd want to say it's underrated but it's definitely not doesn't get as much of the hype as it deserves but i think the best food city in the u.s is new orleans i would i would agree with that New Orleans is New Orleans is the type of place in, where you can pop into any any restaurant and you know it's going to be amazing and it's going to be like not just the food but the homey experience and the service and everything about it is just going to be so welcoming and complete. Mm-hmm. That's that's my experience with New Orleans. That's now. a great advertisement for New Orleans, Tim. There, jeez, yeah, welcoming and complete. Why? Yeah. So why do you say that, Kelly? So I did a trip there like a year and a half ago, maybe. And it was just a food. Well, I've done like two different trips there that was just food trips, like food excursion, food exploration. And just the endless amount of cool, trendy, like, I mean, some spots are, you know, have been around for decades or even longer. And then some spots are, you know, just like kind of new chefs that are up and coming, but have this restaurant that's you know got a little bit of some Cajun influence a little bit of French influence heavy on the seafood but I there's it's just endless and there's so many amazing restaurants and so many cool new neighborhoods popping up too that are not just the French Quarter either um that it was like the last time I went there I think we went to 19 restaurants in like three days wow three and a half days and Every single one was just mind blowing. I was like, I can't, I can't believe how good this food is. So there's, speaking of your work, there's a burning question that I've wanted to know the answer to for years. And I'm going to go on a limb and say that a lot of, lot of TV viewers want to know the same thing. What happens to all the food that is prepared on cooking shows? Do you eat it? Does the crew eat it? Like my wife and I have been binging the great British bake off. And I'm just wondering what the hell is happening to all this amazing looking food? So I would say the vast, vast, vast majority um, is thrown out, if not 90% or more. That's so discouraging. Um, I try personally when, no, I'm only speaking for myself, but when I do one of these shoots, I will go hungry and I like in between shots or like when we're done with one round of dishes or something, I say to me and my crew, I'm like, let's eat it we're eating it at least like as much as we can. And then like, we'll go on to the next shot. And I say to them like, uh, you know, FYI, this is feeding my crew. Like we're not going to let this go to waste. And I think they're appreciative of it. And then I'm like, and I got to feed my crew amazing food. Um, so I try to be conscious about it. I, I follow these, um, a couple people in the baking industry, as you just mentioned, like the British Bake Off show. And apparently there's insane amounts of waste in like the baking industry and um this one girl that i follow like on tiktok and instagram she actually goes above and beyond to try to be extra conscious about it but she said when she worked for like a commercial baker or like bakery before that it was like garbage bags full like dozens of garbage bags full every day of food waste and so i think if you just knew everything that was going on it'd probably be very upsetting but it's just part of the industry. And I'm sure on cooking shows, like on television, they don't care about the food. They care about the shot, getting the perfect shot of the food. You know. Speaking of all this food waste, Tim, do you know what I'm about to bring up? 
Yeah, you know, Kelly, this is one thing you you can't come on no blackout dates without hearing about Eben's brilliant restaurant ideas. I think she's the perfect guest to like to talk to this about because That's probably food waste. True. <laughs> okay. Food waste is a, is something I think about a lot too. Hate waste, love to eat. So my solution, I you know, and I know that and a lot of restaurants will donate excess food or you know goes to farms or whatever. But right. it's, it's just undeniable that a lot of it goes to waste. So here's my idea is that basically you have a restaurant and I'll keep this brief. There's two sides of the restaurant. There's the left and then there's the right. The right side, you go in, the, the customers pay normal amount of money. They eat their dish. It's whatever. It's what is normal foods, mozzarella sticks, chicken fingers, pizzas, whatever. Nachos. Right, I, I know where this is going. Hold on. I, I want to see if I'm right. I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. The left side of the restaurant, you pay five dollars it's all you can eat and the leftovers from the right side of the restaurant get pushed onto a buffet table on the left side i knew it and the people that pay the five dollars get to do all you can eat of the first side's leftovers so the restaurant basically resells the leftover the same dish twice so they make 150 percent on the same plate of chicken fingers and you're paying five bucks. You get what you pay for. You know. I know it's kind of gross. I know it's not uh, up to health code. <laughs> Definitely not. We'll see. But... Yeah, that, that that that's that was my question. And this is only food that can be segmented easily. This isn't like soup. Okay. We're not talking about like salads. It's like chicken fingers, mozzarella sticks, uh, slices of pizza. So say I, you know, I have a sl- I have a plate of like ten mozzarella sticks. My party eats five of them. Five just go in the trash. Nope, they don't go in the trash. They get replated, <laughs> put on the. Uh, Put on the buffet table, they go to the other side of the restaurant and they get eaten and paid for. So it's food that's not really like handled, you know? It's yeah, it's like food that right. would be I mean, so yes, of course someone could on the first side of the restaurant just put their hands all over it and be weird. But you know, it's it's unlikely. There's a certain level of trust that goes into this. A little icky, a little gross. I mean, conceptually, but... I think it's a great idea because that's there the are best some review people, I've gotten sure, so far. Who would, right, who would want, you know, like in my mind I'm like like there are some times where I've thrown food out at restaurants where I'm like, I want, like, I wish somebody else would eat this. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. And you're like, like you or like any, at least yeah. people in the kitchen, like, you know, eat this. Like it's, it's, I didn't even touch it, you know? Um, yeah. No, exactly. I see that all the time when I'm leaving a restaurant and like a, a waiter takes away a plate from someone else's table and there's like half a pizza on it. And I was like, well, well they didn't take it to go. And now it's just going to get thrown away. Conceptually. I think it's a great, uh, it's a great idea in terms of, extra revenue for the restaurant and less food waste. However, in no, practice, no, 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 however, no, we can just end it right there. Count me in. <laughs> I'll invest. I don't, I don't need to hear anything. Else. Execution. Maybe not so much conceptually. Great. I, I like the conveyor belt idea though. Yes. Right. You know, who's going to go to this restaurant. There's a subset of people. Homeless people, Tim. Free, no, called freegans. Okay. And I'll tell you a story about these people. So when I used to play music, we were on the road and we stayed at these people's house once and they were freegans and they did not buy any food or anything. I don't know how they paid the rent on this house. I never asked. But when we got to their house, their living room was full of boxes of dumpster dived food. And in the morning, we asked them where was a good restaurant to go eat at. And they said, I don't know, but I can tell you where there are some good dumpsters. (laughs) <laughs> and those are the those that's your target audience right there evan those are the people i don't know where you're going to get five dollars out of them but you might get like some pocket change and coincidentally the name of the restaurant idea is dumpster diving so oh, comes full circle there you Love go it. there you go great i'm taking that to the bank because that's that's the best review i've gotten by far so love to hear that uh, we can... conceptually it's it's good in in theory um that's my tinder bio good in theory good in theory so to pivot a a little bit to uh back to travel our producer alex tells us that you're huge on travel hacks what's kind of a travel hack that you can't live without to use all the time where i've been most helpful for people um in giving them uh helpful tips and tricks is when it comes to fear of flying and because i used to have a tremendous fear of flying really it was really, really bad where, I mean, borderline paralyzing. And I had to, I'm like, I love to travel. I can't live like this anymore. I can't do this. Um, so I learned so much, you know, read books, 
Uh, my favorite one is Cockpit Confidential. That really like changed my life. Was it a fear um, of crashing, uh, claustrophobia, like what turbulence? Not claustrophobia, like... turbulence, cra- crashing, of course, but turbulence, um, lack of control, fear of the unknown. And so I learned that the more I learned about how airplanes work and what goes on behind the scenes and how it all plays out, the more I knew, the more in control I felt and the, you know, safer I felt and the less anxious I felt. Um, so there've been a lot of apps that have helped me with that. Um, so what I do, and I know this might sound a little crazy, but actually probably not to you guys, cause you're, you know, in this realm as well. But like my husband thinks I'm nuts, um, is I have my one app flight radar 24 that I think is the most comprehensive flight tracking app that there is. A lot of people like flight aware, flight aware, but flight radar 24, is my jam. Um, it even tells you like the age of every plane that you're about to be on. So like even before I have a flight, I'll check the plane. I'm like, Oh good, Okay. This, this plane's only four years old. Like it's probably going to have some more of the bells and whistles. Um, so I go to flight radar 24. I tracking my flight, right. Gives you like real, like I have like the upgraded membership. So I see all the weather data. I know everything that's going on. And then I also listen to liveatc.net which they have an app for that but then they also have the um you know their website or uh, desktop version that i will also listen to air traffic control like during my flight i mean not you know the entire flight every single flight like yesterday when i flew home from florida you know it was a perfectly smooth flight no bad weather it was like awesome so like i never checked in on it but if it's a flight that's maybe a little turbulent or a little dicey we're going through some bad weather like I try to listen so I hear my pilots and I can hear what's going on and I like when I hearing them talk up there and they sound chill and everything's cool then I'm like all right everything's chill and cool there's nothing to worry about and so there have been a lot of like tips and tricks and hacks that I've learned for how directly I mean depending on what somebody's specific fear of flying is but little tips even other than the apps that I help Um, and I've done a lot of like talks and Instagram lives and stuff on this where I can kind of help people get over their fear of flying. That's interesting. I feel like most people who I think have huge crippling fears of flying aren't travelers and don't enjoy traveling because it goes hand in hand. So it's interesting to hear from someone who is a huge traveler and loves to travel, but also had a fear of flying and how you kind of get over that because it's, it's, it's tough. It's super limiting. I mean, you can't, like, I remember, you know, I never had, I think the issue to the extent that you did, but before I ever flew, it was the loss of control. It was the, Mm -hmm. when the plane is specifically when the plane was taking off that it's like, oh Mm -hmm. shit, like I'm not on the ground anymore. I have zero control of what happens to me. Like we're just floating around in, in midair, 30,000 feet, like anything could happen. And just that, that acute awareness that like my feet are not planted on solid ground. Like I would get nauseous in flights. And I think that was because of anxiety. And after I flew a few times, that all went away. But at first I remember thinking like, oh my God, I'm never going to do this again. This is terrible. I can't turn this plane around if I want to. <laughs> like this is, this is awful. But it, with a few f- flights for me, it went away. But for a lot of people, it, it doesn't. Yeah. And you hear, and the thing is, it made me so happy to be able to share this knowledge with people because so many people now that I've, you know, given these, whether it's these talks or these videos that I've done, um, I have so many people like, oh, I bought that book. Thank you so much. That helped so much. It was like I flew for the first time last week and I wasn't scared because of what you taught me. And so like that to me is very rewarding because I don't always, I'd be like, oh, I'm scared to fly. And people would be like, it's the safest form of travel. I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help, you know? And so you hear people always scared of it, but you never really hear somebody that actually has some answers for how to help and how to get over it. So you listening to air traffic control. I didn't even know you could do that. You you are a flying nerd. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You are a nerd. I am. Oh, I am the biggest, biggest av geek when it comes to that stuff. I mean, it's like, so, so my husband, he, as I said, thinks I'm nuts about it. But recently when he saw how much it actually helped me and how he thinks I do it out of sheer fear where... I'm actually just really into it also. It's just kind of, you know, that nerdy thing in me where I really like 
you know, like listening to the air traffic controllers with the pilots. Like to me, it's just so fascinating that he's finally come to terms with it. He's like, all right, I get it. You actually enjoy it and I'll stop making fun of you. You guys have gotten past that initial, that initial block. Yeah. All right. Well, I I have a question here. You're in music, you're in, uh, in, in food. Do you find celebrity chefs and rock stars to be insufferable people? Is there ego there? And who would you rather hang out with? Ooh, that's a good one. That is a good one. I've never been asked that. Um, they, there are a lot of similarities. The ego is definitely there. They're a lot of times a little grandiose in their own thoughts about themselves as well, which I guess goes with ego. Um, lots of tattoos, musicians and, and the chefs both have, mm-hmm. you know, they're both tatted up right now. Like walking down the street now, it'd be hard to be like, is that guy a chef or is he a guitar player? And right. You know, some band, like you wouldn't even know anymore. Um, the thing that you want to hang out with musicians and you want to hang out with chefs. Why? Because chefs make amazing food and musicians play amazing music, but neither will really do it kind of like on call. <laughs> like there was, I, I dated a chef for a while, several years ago. And I would be like, well, are you going to cook for me? Or <laughs> like, can I benefit from this somehow? You know? And like in a year and a half, he cooked me for me one time. You know, I was like, well, what's the point? And same thing with musicians. You know, you're like, well, you're going to play me a song. And they're like, no, I don't, I don't do that. Well, it's like they do it all day for work. It's like, well, they don't want to come home and, you know, have lived their lives. Exactly. Exactly. So when it comes to hanging out, you know, I'm friends with both the famous musicians and chefs, and they're both lovely in their own right. Depends on, I guess, the person versus the industry. But um, yeah, you'd think that you'd get more of those benefits in terms of like being cooked for or being played music to, but that doesn't happen as much as you'd, as you'd think it would. Come on chefs, step it up. Well, same thing. Like my husband's a comedian and I'll always be like, why aren't like, tell me a joke. Why are you not funny today? Right. Or people be like, tell me a joke. You know, he's like, I don't do that on on demand. You know, I'm like, or like I tell him a joke and he's like, that's, and he's like, that's not funny. I'm like, (laughs) honestly, we've had two or three comedians on the, on the podcast. And I'm and my expectation had been, Oh man, they're just going to be laying down jokes every 10 seconds. It's going to be hilarious. I'm going to be laughing my ass off. And they're just like, they're arguably the lowest key people that we've had on. Just very chill, very mellow, like really no jokes. Comedians (laughs) are also inherently, for the most part, I don't want to overgeneralize, but very dark people who have had really hard lives. Um, That's how they become comedians is because their lives are so painful. They have to find coping mechanisms and a lot of that is like kind of a gallows humor type thing where they're able to make fun of the darkness or um to just be able to like make other people laugh so when they make other people laugh it makes them feel better and that helps them get through a lot of a lot of difficulties in their own lives so I mean that's like my husband like he's had like a really really hard life most people would not ever think that they'd be like oh he's so cheerful and happy it's like no he's you know, he's had a rough time and he's, you know, um, a darker guy. And, you know, when you're just hanging out, like it's not all, you know, upbeat, but, but when you're talking to them, like on a, on a podcast, like the stuff that comes out of their mouths, I'm like, how are they so funny? All the, like, they don't try to be funny. They're not even trying to tell jokes, but they're always just making people laugh, even if they're not trying to, you know? So I think once you're a comedian and you have that gift, just being able to make other people laugh is like all the medicine that they need, you know? So speaking of your husband, when I was researching this, I read that you guys met because he slid into your Instagram DMs. And I'm, I'm, I can't help but wonder if that creeped you out a little bit. I know he's a very well-known person, uh, but it is, you know, you're like, Oh my God, Bob Saget just messaged me. Like what was the, how did that feel? So, um, we had a mutual friend in Chicago who is a media like news guy. And so he, Bob found my Instagram and he, I think he was a little burnt out on the LA scene. And he's like, I think I need a good salt of the earth, Midwestern gal, you know? And so he saw my Instagram and he's like, wow, like she, it's not, you know, all bikini pics and stuff. Like she's actually 
you know, she has something to say. She has the show. She, you know, she seems to be an actual human. So he reached out to this mutual friend and he's like, do you know this Kelly Rizzo girl? And he's like, yeah, like, I don't know her well, but yeah. And Bob goes, is she a bitch? And he's like, <laughs> no, she's actually really nice, I hear. And he's like, I think I want to DM her. So this guy told his girlfriend, who's my friend, who told me, like, Bob Saget's about to DM you. And I was like, So you knew it was coming, though. So it wasn't I like he just came coming. out of left field. And I was very kind of like, what? Like, that's weird. Like, right. I was not interested because, you know, he was a little bit older and not really my type. And I was like, what? And then he sent this like really funny, like great DM, like, hey, would love to invite you to a show sometime and then take you out for a bunch of burgers and lobsters. I see you like food, you know, something like that. And so we just kind of <laughs> became friends for a while, like social media friends. And just so you know, a DM like that would never, ever work unless you're Bob Saget. <laughs> Bob Saget's got some game, though. Like that's that's a pretty like, you know, he didn't come in with some corny line. He, he was just honest. Limb. He went out on a limb and yeah. uh, he like genuinely then became like we became f friends and then when i came out to la we hung out and then he i think he kind of had a crush on me and i wasn't really reciprocating and then he was like you know I, it's been great hanging out with you but i feel like this isn't really reciprocated so like let's just you know be friends we don't need to go to dinner tonight or whatever and i was like wait but wh what if it is reciprocated he was like wait really okay what time is dinner you know so then finally i realized i'm like damn it i think he's pretty great oh well like i'll just get over the fact that he, he just know. had to pull it back a little bit and that's yeah. i know i know and it worked and then i was like you know here we are six years later so uh the moral of the story is burgers and lobster yes but also you know life is very unexpected you have no idea what's going to come at you you have no idea where things are going to lead and you know you could find friendships or relationships with like in the most unlikely places so you mean you didn't know you were going to marry the guy from full house like come on if you would have told me <laughs> when i was you know and i like liked the show but i wasn't like a super fan of it but uh like when i was in high school or junior high you know watching america's funniest home videos and stuff like if you would have told me when i was like 10 years old watching that like you're gonna marry him i would have been like <laughs> What? Like it doesn't, it, it wouldn't even been in my like realm of consciousness or like feasibility. But yeah, now looking back, like it's, uh, it's weird how life works out, right? Tim, so that means there's still hope for you and uh, Avril Lavigne. Maybe, <gasps> maybe. I love her. She, now I would have a, I would have a big, I would fan out over Avril. I've never met her, but I would die because I love her. I would too. I, I'm a little, you know, she missed the boat on me though. I'm already off the market, so. Yeah, Tim, Tim just had a, uh, Tim just had a baby. Month ago, but Dude. I think he—I oh, think he might blow up his Thank whole you. family situation for Avril. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's 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 understandable, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know on, on the air. It's <laughs> <laughs> like shut up, Evan. Shut up. All right. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for coming on. This has been really fun. Aww. Where uh, can people find you online and check out uh, Travel Rock Productions? Is your newest project, right? Yeah. So everything is like at eat travel rock on instagram twitter you know TikTok, and eat travel rock productions is the new production company and that's um on instagram or obviously online too at eat travel rock productions is everything so awesome and that's where you're yeah. making videos for restaurants and yeah okay. so that's for for hospitality um hotels and restaurants to do like cinema quality um you know food and beverage uh videos for their social media very cool well i will be sure to keep you updated on my giordano's experience please i want to hear all about it please t minus three hours away cannot wait so i'll I let you know very excited for you and tim congratulations on on the baby yeah thank you and thanks for coming thank on thank you guys so much for having me this was so fun i love this chat so thanks again and Please keep me posted on the pizza. I need full details. It's arguable which is the bigger news, my pizza experience tonight or Tim's new baby, but I'll keep you posted. I mean, <laughs> first time in a lifetime for Deep Dish. That is some big news. A lot of firsts. A lot of firsts yeah, happening for both news. of us. A lot of firsts going on right now. I know. Oh, right. Thank you guys so much. This was so fun. Right on. Thanks, Kelly. Have a good one.
Okay, well, here we are in news of the day after a great chat with Kelly. And uh, Evan, my first piece of news today is something that has been all the rage, uh, if not popularly, at least as far as viralness over the last couple of weeks. Ever since Facebook announced its company is changing its name to Meta, there have been puns, there have been memes, there have been jokes all over the internet. And Matador published a story the other day that I, there was a really good take by Ice. Matador where... or Matador? Matador. Ha <laughs> Matador. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you, you, maybe we'll change our name to Matador. Be- because of Meta. We should pitch Ross on that. Uh, anyway, so Iceland's tourism uh, promotion company, a, a, a brand called Inspired by Iceland, took a Mark Zuckerberg lookalike named Zach Mossbergson, stuck him in a bunch of iconic Iceland spots, and dubbed it the Iceland verse in a blatant diss to uh, to Mark. So my personal opinion, Evan, and I'm, I imagine you're going to agree with me because this seems like something that we would agree on. Uh, I would rather go to the Iceland verse than the metaverse. I just can't get over how ridiculous these virtual reality headsets look. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's exactly a hot take to say that you'd rather go to Iceland than look at Iceland through some kind of virtual headset. Um, I, I mean, I guess I kind of understand the appeal of the virtual thing in terms of trip inspiration and just stoking wanderlust, but that to me is a means to an end. It's like the goal is to ultimately go to Iceland in person. Um, but it's, I, I might have to out you because I feel like you told me during quarantine that what you would do to pass the time was go on Google Street View in Bali and just tour around on the streets where you had been in Bali. And that was like your way of escapism. Fair enough, fair enough. Maybe I'm already living in the metaverse and I just don't know it. But I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not putting on those ridiculous goggles. Yeah, I mean, virtual, I mean, this is this is to be slightly different, but virtual reality, I felt like, I thought maybe five years ago, six years ago, virtual reality was going to be like the future that we're all going to be living in uh, this world where we all use these goggles every time we sit down to our computers, every time we, as we even walk around the street, we're all wearing these virtual reality goggles to enhance our perception of reality. And that just has not panned out. Like no. the Oculus, whatever, the Google Glass, like none of that stuff has really lived up to its potential. And but they keep telling us it's coming. Like for years, it's been know. it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and it's never coming because it's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and I can see this as a take that doesn't age well. Like in three years, when we're all doing this, then people are like, "Well, I guess uh, I guess you're wrong." It's it's just interesting. Like like I can see the benefit of it from a video gaming perspective, you know. But beyond that, like I don't think that society is just going to walk around with these goggles on all the time. Like you hear talk of like, okay, when you go on a hike. You're going to be wearing these goggles and they're going to like create this ultimate like high res version of Pokemon Go. And you're just going to be walking around looking at all this crazy shit all the time. And I, I don't buy it. I don't think anybody is going to be into that. No. Yeah, I agree. We kind of deviated a little bit from the Iceland, uh, Iceland verse versus the metaverse thing. But I think well, we're it's all on, good because uh... they were Iceland was making fun of it anyway. So we're on Iceland's side. That's the yeah. moral of all this. Yeah. All right, next up here, we got an article called, This is How Your Checked Luggage is Stored Underneath a Plane, and it has a video that we'll link in the show notes so you guys can watch it. But basically, it exposes the journey of checked bags from when they leave your hands to when they show up on the baggage carousel, and what the luggage handlers are doing, how they're stored under the plane, and stacked, and you know how it's kind of like a Tetris situation under there. And I think this is fascinating to a lot of people, but for me, I don't want to know what's going on with my bag. I mean, first of all, as anyone who listens to the show knows, I don't check a bag. But if I did, I wouldn't want to know what happens to it. I don't want to know how that McDouble is made. I don't want to know what's in the sauce. I just want you to take my bag for me and I want to show up on the other side. Don't tell me what's in there. Right. No, I I agree, man. And especially like... I'm similar to you where I I generally don't check a bag unless I'm going on an expedition outdoor trip. That's the, if I have to have gear, I will. And then even more, I don't want to know what's going on because that's expensive stuff that you're checking. I'm not checking my shirts and my socks. You're checking hundreds of dollars worth of stuff that is absolutely critical to having arrive on the other side intact and ready to go. I do not want to see other people handling it and I don't want to see a dog sniffing it. I don't want to see any of that. 
No, well, and I'll tell you, I did a um, like a behind-the-scenes tour of Munich Airport when I was in Germany in September, and it, it was interesting. But they basically took you below the airport to the basement where all of the all of the bags are. There's thousands and thousands of bags in these conveyor belts. It's an unbelievable feat of logistics how these things don't get lost, and then each bag gets sniffed by this pack of like bomb sniffing dogs, and every single bag they're getting walked all over by dogs and sniffed and turned over and i mean they're they're being handled with care but you know a little more rough than you might expect and it's like i that would make me incredibly nervous knowing that that's where my bag is going i just like to think the bag is going behind the desk and then popping out on the carousel that's all i want to think about i don't want to know what's in between keep it to yourself yeah here's a question what happens if you're allergic to dogs and your dog, your bag comes out on the other side covered in dog hair and you, you have like a, a allergic reaction? I don't know. That's a really good question. Like I'm never huh. going to tell my mom this because she'll never check a bag again. But what happens if you're allergic to dogs and you get on a flight and there's someone with a, a emotional support animal on it? I know, I've always wondered the same thing. Yeah, I've always wondered the same thing. Like how, how is that? How does that play into the factor? Can you raise a complaint and actually have it be taken seriously? I don't know. I don't think you can. I think I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a question for another time, though. It's a, it's a really interesting one. Maybe we'll have an emotional support animal on the uh, on the show, and we can interview it. You know, yeah, it's just a, it's another reason why we need a TSA agent on No Black Updates. <laughs> it's a full disclosure, everyone. We've been trying very diligently to get a TSA agent on. We've emailed their uh, their official inquiry form, and they shot us back almost immediately with a definitive no because it's a breach of security. So they they do not want any TSA agents to be appearing on no blackout dates, but you know what? That's just going to make us try even harder because we don't give up. Right, Tim? No, we don't give up. And you know what? A TSA agent might even rank above Tom DeLong for my most desired guests on the show. <laughs> TSA agent Tom DeLong, often uttered in the same sentence. Thanks for listening to no blackout dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Evan Flow underscore on Instagram and he is Tim Winger one. We'll see you guys next week.